Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to John 6. We're going to pick up at verse 22 and go through 27. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Says the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no, no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray as we return to your word, Father, that that you would prune us, so that we might grow, that you would feed us, that we might be nourished. Father, that you would, your spirit would be at work in us so that we might be sanctified. Or bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So we return this week to contemplating those crowds that fed on Jesus' miraculous bread and fish, Uh, those people who fed on that bread and then desired to take Jesus by force and make him the king of a political kingdom. Uh, The first verse outlined, the first verses here in this section outline the fact that the crowds went back even after Jesus dispersed them, right? And uh, to seek out the disciples or to seek out Jesus himself. They they had seen that Jesus and his disciples didn't leave together. And they saw the disciples get into the boat, but they didn't see Jesus uh, do so. That confused them, especially when uh, they found him at Capernaum. Uh, The crowds remark, Rabbi, when did you get here? And it all points to the fact that what had happened the night before was miraculous. They had no explanation for it. And and, um, even those who observed from a distance knew something was going on and they they just couldn't quite wrap their heads around it. So they're asking questions. Some portion of the multitude from the day before get into these small boats from Tiberias and make their way over to Capernaum. Now, what are they doing? 
It says very simply in verse 24, they're seeking Jesus. They're seeking Jesus. But you and I know what that means and what that doesn't mean, right? Um, We'll shortly find out when Jesus speaks with them. Jesus, as usual, this is his MO, does not answer the question that's put to him. At least he doesn't answer it in a straightforward manner. Uh, he, he doesn't answer about how or when he got there. To answer that question would have gotten them bogged down in logistics and, or an explanation of miracles, and that is not what he wants to discuss at that point. Instead, as we've come to expect, he, he uh, hones in on their hearts. He looks at their hearts and gives them what they need to hear. He already knew that they had impure intentions, right, when they were going to take him by force and make him the king. And knowing this, it is not worth giving in to their curiosity, which is just fueled by a misunderstanding of both his power and a misunderstanding of his kingdom, right? So, so what does he do? He preaches. He preaches not just um, interesting facts. He preaches in, in a particular manner. And, and this is what he does. He preaches to the conscience of those who hear him. That's what he does. He pricks their hearts. He looks at the inward man and pulls apart their motives. That's what, that's what he's doing in his preaching, he confronts them for their sins, those sins which are weighing them down and causing them to miss who Jesus really is. He doesn't want them to miss that. And so he's, he's preaching to their conscience. His words begin with a solemn introduction. This solemn introduction only occurs in the Gospel of John. It's the only time we read, truly, truly, I say to you, And already in John's gospel up to this point, we're in chapter 6. Jesus has has said it many times. He said it to Nathanael. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Three times to Nicodemus, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, He can't enter the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. To the Jews who wanted to kill him because he was breaking the Sabbath and making himself equal with God, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And to the same Jews, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Then there are 17 more examples of Jesus using that phrase throughout the Gospel of of John. None of the other Gospels have Jesus saying this, but, but that phrase that Jesus spoke stuck out to the Apostle John. He latched onto it, and it was a kind of cue for him. 
It was a kind of cue that Jesus was, was speaking solemn truths. Uh, Calvin says that he believed Jesus used this phrase for the purpose of arousing his hearers to more earnest attention. Right? He's just trying to get them to listen. Truly, truly, I say to you. And he's trying to get them to listen. Ryle says, in every place it implies a very solemn, emphatic assertion of some great truth or some heart-searching fact. Just cues that off. Jesus is going to say a, a, an intensely profound truth, right? Hendrickson says that it, it may be rendered, most solemnly I say to you. Right? In the Greek, it's amen, amen. Right? Truly, truly. Now there... Right, you, you and I know that there are no unimportant words from the mouth of God, from the Word of God, but that only underlines the effect of these words. Nothing Jesus said was superfluous or without meaning, but some things he said, he uses these words to really say, listen now, listen intently. You must hear this. This is a fundamental truth. You must hear it. Solemn truths are introduced by a double amen. Now, what does Jesus say to these, these miraculously-fed, politically-minded people? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. The solemn statement is about the motives of the people who followed Jesus. Why were they following? What was the motives of their heart? And Jesus just lays them open. Right? He says, first of all, that they were not following Jesus because they saw signs. It is not the miracles that motivated the people to follow him, which is to say it is not his power that prompts the people to get into the boats and travel across the Sea of Galilee to find him. Just the day before, it, it had been the miracles that motivated them. Look at verse 2 of chapter 6. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Just the day before, in awe of his power. Only 24 hours later, they are already numb to the miracles of the Son of God. And when the miracles of Jesus are, are simply, simply become a novelty, then they will click, quickly become boring. Right? I mean, we all know that about ourselves, don't we? Fads come and go. As, as long as they are new, we are happy to fix our attention on them. But the newness wears off very quickly. Particularly when there's no payoff for participating in those fads. But dear brothers and sisters, these, these are the miracles of God incarnate. These are the works of the omnipotent God in the world. And 24 hours later, they are bored. Not seeking Jesus for what he's, the signs he's made. Our hearts are so easily put off the things of God. We can, have, we can have mountaintop experiences and feel that we are lifted up into the very heavenlies. Many of us have experienced that. And then the next moment be wallowing in the mud, right? Lusting like a, an animal. Lashing out in anger toward our, our dear children. Counting our money like, 
like Scrooge, right? From mountaintop experience to those things can be moments away from one another. I mean, this, this is what it means to live within dwelling sin. There is an enemy within us, and unless we fight him, we'll be put off the things of God. We'll be taken away from them. Unless we fight the enemy, we will witness a miracle, and then 24 hours later, be yawning from boredom. Unless we fight against our sinful nature, putting to death the deeds of the body, taking thoughts captive, being transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? we'll be bored with God's power. And being bored with God's power, we'll look for power elsewhere. When we get bored with God's power, we don't get bored with power. We just get bored with God's power, and then we look for power elsewhere. Power in the civil government. That pathetic power. Power in science. Power in narrative. Right? Power in space travel, right? Bezos thinks he's going to rule the universe. But he's merely gone a few feet away from earth. Right? Rather than those things, right? Civil government and, and, and science, narrative, space travel, all those things, instead of those things being done for the glory of God... They, they become false gods in themselves. Our sinful nature, under the accuser's influence, continually works to make us bored with God's power and inspired with lesser, no powers. Our sinful nature does that. And, and if we don't check ourselves, we, we'll end up being ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We'll be ashamed of the gospel. These crowds have quickly gotten bored with the power of God. And and what is it that they are seeking from Jesus? What do they want? Well, he says in the next phrase, Truly, truly, I say to you, You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. There we have it. They traveled to find Jesus because they wanted to fill their stomachs with more bread. They don't even see the miracle of the multiplying of the bread that that led to their being able to be fed anyway. That was a sign. They just remember how nice it was to have a full belly, bread and sauceless fish. Right? They, they, what they want is to always have a full belly. That's what they want. How many are there among us? Now I'm trying to preach to the conscience, right? That's what Jesus did, and I take Jesus usually joking, as my example. How many are there among us who follow Jesus because there's some earthly benefit to doing so? 
We don't really believe all of that pie in the sky, man is sinful, needs reconciliation with a holy God and an eternal life after death in the presence of, of, of God who created everything visible and invisible and the Son of God rising from the dead and triumphing over death and, and bringing it to an end. We don't really believe that. We simply like our conservative morality and being among a people who share our conservative Republican Southern states' rights morality. Or conversely, I mean, I always pick on the Republicans, but I can pick on the other side too, right? Conversely, we like being among a people who share our woke, democratic, northern, nanny state morality. That's the other half of the churches in America. Right? Some, some men attend church and follow Christ because it gives them some peace at home with their wives. That's why they do it. That's why they've done it for decades. They just want peace at home and to get their wife off their back. Right? Some women follow Christ because it, it allows them to save face with their overbearing parents. Some follow Christ, attend worship, so show interest in Christianity because there are earthly benefits to it. And, and this is why persecution always purifies the church. Because those who follow Jesus for weak motives will not do so when pain comes with it. When there is actually some, some cost and not a benefit. But nevertheless, there are many who follow Christ because they want full bellies. They want spiritual vibes. They want some sort of, sort of boast on this earth. Some do it because it gives them cover for their sins. Did you know that? Some people just go to church because they want a covering, a veneer of morality so that they can continue to pursue their sins in darkness. Think of how many college-aged women go to their evangelical churches or evangel presbytery churches on Sunday after they have slept with their boyfriends on Saturday. Right? They need people to think better of them, so a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of worship, a little bit of veneer of Jesus helps them through that. Think of how many men need uh, the church, and a little bit of Jesus to convince their wives that they are not completely given over to their daily visit to the red district of their iPhones. I'm a good church, church-going moralist. Why are you here today? Yeah, why are you here today? Why are you sitting in a Christian church today? Why? Why are you following Jesus if indeed you are following Jesus? I mean, of all the things, um, Jesus came to bring forgiveness of sins and the people follow him because they like his welfare program. That's what's happening here. He came to bring forgiveness of sins. Something you can't, can't possibly take care of on your own. And they want welfare. The Son of God came 
in the fullness of time, sent from his father, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption into his household as sons, and ignoring that, we follow him because we want our wives to give us some peace, or we want to follow in the footsteps of our hero, Stonewall Jackson, or we want to please our parents or children, or we want something to do with other people socially who are like us, or we want a social club, or, or just some reason to rail against the government, whatever. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to be a Christian. Not even thinking about the purpose of Christ's coming. We want our bellies filled. As he did on that day, Jesus knows your motives for coming to worship today. He knows every one of you and why you're here, what your motives are. He knows whether you just want your belly filled or whether you want to seek your life in him. He knows whether you are just going through the motions or you're seeking his face. Right? For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. He's looking. He's examining. Just as Jesus did that day, God today is examining every one of your hearts. And, and he knows why you're here. You may deceive your wife. You may deceive your husband. You may deceive your friends. You may deceive your parents. But you cannot deceive Jesus because he looks on the heart. He's got vision that we don't have. Ryle makes this application from this text. He says, To deal plainly with people about their spiritual condition and faithfully expose their false motives, if we know them, is the positive duty of ministers and teachers. It is no kindness or charity to flatter professing Christians and tell them they are children of God and going to heaven if we know that they only make a religious profession for the sake of what they can get. That's the unenviable task of pastors and elders. That's all pastors and elders do, right? Every time we have a conversation with somebody, every time we ask you to come to the session meeting so we can talk to you, or every time you know we do a visitation, all those things, it's just we're trying to examine your hearts as best we can, not infallibly, but as best we can, and to find out if, if you are a child of God or whether you're just making a profession for some other earthly reason. I know you don't want elders and pastors like that because you're Americans. I, I know it. I know it of my own heart. I don't want pastors and elders getting in my business. Americans come from don't tread on me stock. We do not like to be told anything by any authority. We don't like people to deal with us plainly because we are masters of keeping up appearances. And we simply won't, won't have others distracting us from, from that juggling act that we're doing to keep everything working to our advantage. But what about you? 
Right? Everybody talks as if having negligent shepherds is so terrible, right? We'll all say that. We'll all say that, man, they're just pastors who just don't care for their flocks and don't go after them. And, you know, we're just American church. No pastors anymore. And the pulpit's so weak and da-da-da-da-da, right? They talk about the weakness of the church and pastors, their negligence. But when those shepherds then approach some sheep who is in danger, When those pastors come away from the fences and enter the pen, right, those sheep bolt away as quickly as possible, as quickly as they can, and then begin slandering those overly scrupulous and intrusive and cult-like leaders of that church that are overbearing, right? From, From complaining about negligence to like, that's a cult. I You think I'm joking. I'm not joking. It it simply is the case. I've come to expect it, that the sheep expect the shepherds of the church to flatter them. And when they do not, oh man, the sheep have sharp teeth. They have really sharp teeth. And when the elders of this church exercise their discernment and become fearful, they become fearful. They become concerned that someone who makes a profession is only doing so for the sake of what they can get. That they spring into action is the very minimum required of of faithful shepherding, right? Faithful discipleship. You should pray that you understand this. And, and see an example of it in Jesus Christ himself, who is the great shepherd of the sheep. That's what he's doing here. He exposes the sin of these people. Why? So that they might repent and believe and grow and yield and see how foolish it is for them to want, want bread when the bread of life is right before them. Augustine said, Jesus is seldom sought for the sake of Jesus. Seldom sought for the sake of Jesus. The crowds that we read about in chapter 6 sought Jesus, not to have Jesus, but to have bread and filled bellies. They, they should have come to Jesus, I, I mean, they, they should have come to Jesus to have Jesus. Right? They should have come to him not as a dispenser of bread, but a dispenser of something that's more important, which is God's grace. They should have come to him not because they wanted to fill their stomachs with food, but because they wanted to fill their hearts with him, with faith in him. Again, today, many people pursue God merely because they want Listen to this. It's not necessarily earthly gain. Many people pursue Jesus just because they want to go to heaven. Because as they rightfully do, they imagine that heaven is probably a wonderful place. Right? They want to go there because it, it, it will be better, much better than this world. Right? They, they want to do that. If you believe in I mean, if you're, if you're like John Lennon, then you, you don't believe in, in anything. 
right? But, but, if you, but if you, you know, a lot of people just pursue religion because they want to go to heaven. They want something after this world. And, and all that was terrible in this world is gone in heaven. And, you know, it's, it's imagined to be a, a place of perpetual 75-degree days. Wonderful fellowship with the people that went there before us and rest. And who wouldn't want that? Right? Who wouldn't want that? Many people go to church because they want to get out of this world and into that world, but that is to make the same mistake as those who as, as these crowds who wanted their stomachs full. They want the benefits that surround Jesus, but they are ignorant of Jesus himself. And if heaven is anything, right, it is the place in God's creation where God dwells. As crazy as that sounds. In other words, if your conception of heaven is wonderful because of what you will experience, sort of importing the best parts of this life into the life to come, you've completely missed the point. Heaven is wonderful because God is there. That's why heaven is wonderful. God is there. Heaven is wonderful because the God who is love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit allows access to Him there. So you see, many people pursue Jesus because they want the fringe benefits of heaven. But heaven is the place where God Himself gives himself to those who love him. Now at this point, you know I have to bring in some Jonathan Edwards. His wonderful sermon, Heaven, a World of Love, he says, there in heaven, this infinite fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it as it flows forever. There this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. And there this glorious fountain forever flows in stream, yea, in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell as it were to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransom may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment. And their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. Because God is there. The God who is love. So dear brothers and sisters, it is the excellence of God. The glory of God that motivates us to say with the Apostle Paul that it is better to depart and be with the Lord. It's not the fringe benefits. It is not first about an end to our suffering sent to us from God in this world. It is first about being with God himself in heaven. There are many you see who want heaven but conceive of it as a vacation and not as the dwelling place of Almighty God. Right? Many want heaven but do not want the Christ of heaven. Many think heaven... Wonderful because of its peace, but not because of Christ's presence. But there's only peace there because Christ is present. 
Those who pursue Jesus in this world out of pretense or from wrong motives or for peripheral benefits will inevitably have a wrong view of the world to come. Right? Those who pursue Jesus in spirit and truth, who recognize that it is he himself they need and his blood upon them, right? who pursue first his kingdom, they'll have a right view of the world to come. They'll want to go there because he whom they love and he whom they've loved in this life is there. It will be all about him. It will be all about him, his person, and not merely his benefits, right? Though there will be plenty of benefits. There will be unending benefits, unending welfare of the highest sort. We'll be tasting that wine that he made in Cana. So examine yourself. Examine yourself. If your pursuit of Christ, like the people of this crowd, is your pursuit like that? Do you love Jesus or do you love some advantage that that following or pursuing Jesus or going to church gives you? Do you worship Jesus because, because you are in awe of his glorious person? Or do you worship Jesus because you need those vibes and you need to convince your spouse and you need to do this and you've done a cost-benefit analysis and you've, you've found that going to church gives you some sort of street cred with somebody? And Jesus said, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Strive hard for spiritual food. Jesus is what will satisfy your soul. He's the food that will endure to eternal life. Rise up above. I mean, seriously, rise. Can we? Can I? Can we rise up above our bodily desires to consider the needs of our souls? Do you get that? How much of your time is given to satisfying your cravings, your body's demands? How much of your time? I mean, is it, isn't it like 100%? How much, how much of your time is given to satisfy the cravings of your soul? Are, are your desires directed toward this life or toward eternal life? Right? How will you know when you are feeling or when you are feeding your soul and moving on from just feeding your body, well, you'll feast on God's word. You will hunger for righteousness. You will long to worship your Savior. You will set your mind on things above and not the things of the earth. You will endure suffering, knowing that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. You'll love your brothers and sisters in the church. You'll pray to God and know he hears. You will anticipate the life to come in all that you do, right? You will love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and the Spirit will then be waging war against your flesh. Ryle puts it this way, we must labor in the use of all appointed means. We read our Bibles, 
like men digging for hidden treasure. We must wrestle earnestly in prayer like men contending with a deadly enemy for life. We must take our whole heart to the house of God and worship and hear like those who listen to the reading of a will. (laughs) We must fight daily against sin, the world, and the devil like those who fight for liberty and must conquer or be slaves. You will find no encouragement for this kind of work from your unbelieving friends. They will try to convince you that all this is worthless and a bit wacko and fringe and sort of right-wing and, you know. And that you should just come run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. Ignore them. Stick your fingers in your ears and run toward yonder wicked gate. Right? You will not be disappointed when this life ends and the demands of your belly are silenced and you stand before the lover of your soul. You will not be disappointed. And then finally, let me say this about this last phrase we're looking at. The father has taken his signet ring and metaphorically speaking, stamped it upon his son which means that the Son has all the authority of the Father upon Him. The Father has set His seal upon His Son, which means that all who come to Christ seeking for that incorruptible food will not be disappointed. And know this, only Christ has that seal set upon Him. There is one, right? There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is only one that has that seal set upon him. If you, and he is yours if you have come to know him. If he is the greatest object of your affection and the greatest subject of your thoughts, then you will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. But if it is the fridge benefits that animates you to attend church, to read scripture, to act morally, right? Well, then you will be disappointed. You will be greatly disappointed. Because he will on that great day even say to some who did much more than you've done, right? Perform miracles. He will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So examine yourselves. Examine yourself. Find out if your heart is set upon Christ or whether it's just set upon your stomach. And if you find it set upon Christ, come to Christ. Set your affections upon Him and you'll be satisfied. I guarantee it. You'll find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you. We thank you for your mercy through Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you have set your seal upon Christ, that you have provided one Savior, and that that's enough. Father, forgive us for all the false saviors that we have tried to prop up in our lives. We have tried to pursue salvation in some of the stupidest places you could possibly imagine. 
I mean, some people look to stones and trees. Some people look to the thoughts of man. Some people look to, to mammon and money. Father, some people look to, to empty their minds. Some people look to heroes who are just men. But Father, you have taught us that there is only one way to come into your presence without being cast out, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ, the one upon you you have set your seal. And so, Father, we pray for those who are wavering, that you would draw them out of their darkness and into the light of your Son. Father, we thank you that you redeem souls, that you will raise us one day incorruptible forever to be with you. We thank you that our brother Bob Simkin trusted in you believed by faith that you were his Savior and now being absent from the body, he's present with you. And Father, I pray that you would, you would help us in the fight against the, the power of our stomachs, the power of our desires, the power of the flesh, of the body. I pray that we wouldn't like, be like Esau who, who, who gave away his birthright just for a, a pot of stew. But that we would see the preciousness of salvation in Jesus. And that our eyes would be fixed upon him. That we would continue to fight the good fight until we can stand in his presence with, with robes of righteousness, with, with your Smile coming to us. And I pray that we would long for heaven not as an escape, but Father, long because it is so excellent because you are there loving your people. Pray that that would be the desire of our hearts because Christ would be dwelling in those hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.